Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Collective Genius and my friend Jeff Martin. They build high-performing teams for venture-backed growth companies and venture capital firms. Their peak planning operating system helps leadership teams with a three-year vision, one-year plan, quarterly OKRs, and tools to stay on track along the way. I have several friends who have used peak planning very successfully, so if you want to learn more, message me and I'll introduce you to Jeff and the team over at Peak Planning. I'm super excited to have Dave Ferrara on the podcast with me today. Before we get to hear from him, though, let me tell you a little bit about Dave. He's currently the general partner of Treadstone Holdings, a venture studio focused on the catheter-based diagnostic and interventional radiology technologies. They work with doctors and entrepreneurs and use or create intellectual property to develop new companies around them. Dave's a board member for a number of early stage medical device companies as well. Throughout his career, he's been a researcher, he's been a product developer, and a technologist in the medical device industry. So from my perspective, he's very well suited to run a venture studio along with his partners. He's an engineer by training and he's transplanted here like me from the East Coast many, many years ago. He's also a recent book author. He just released a book titled Innovation and Translation, How Big Ideas Really Happen earlier this year and I really want to talk to him about the book and, and how he came to, to write it. Dave, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with the book. As I mentioned, what inspired you? Uh, you know, we as entrepreneurs always have a lot of ideas and, and, you know, those ultimately, I think, turn into patterns and frameworks and things. But what led you to finally codify something like that into a book? It's a good question. Uh, it, it wasn't entirely my idea. Uh, a good friend of mine, Oren Klapp, who's author of a couple of books, one's called Pitch Anything, the second's called Flip the Script, um, really inspired me and encouraged me to write this book. He was the banker um, on our deal when we um, had Vault acquire Blockade Medical in 2016. Okay. I, I met Oren in 2015, reading his book, Pitch Anything. My, my brother-in-law recommended it, and it's about you know, the art of the pitch, whether you're raising money, um, you're pitching a customer, you're pitching your kid to do something. Mm -hmm. It's the art of the pitch. So I read it. I think I got through the first five chapters. I flipped to the back, saw his email, emailed him. He emailed back that afternoon, met me the next day because he lived in the San Diego area. And I told him what I did and we hit it off and became friends. And we began that journey of friendship and business partner. And once the deal was culminated between Vault and Blockade, he'd heard my stories, been part of the deal transaction, and he began to learn about the medical device industry and companies I'd been involved with, how I started off as an engineer back in the early 90s, how my grandfather had died in the 80s of a stroke, which kind of led me into the healthcare business. And he's like, man, this would be a great book for you to write to teach entrepreneurialism you know how does an engineer from the northeast who's an athlete become an entrepreneur in medical devices uh you know you know how, how do you make medical devices you know i'm sure you had lots of failures and successes you know how, 
you know, how, how you built teams. Um, and, you know, and, you know, and here you are, you're 53 and you, you work for, for big companies and startups and had all these acquisitions. So, you know, tell a story and teach people how to do that. So I thought about it and he introduced me to his, his ghostwriter on Pitch Anything. And we started that process of eight short chapter summaries and a lot of homework. Um, that then got pitched to several publishing houses. Uh, Forbes was one of the ones that liked it because they didn't have any entrepreneur in the medical device industry. I was there first. Um, so they were excited about that. And so then we wrote the book and it just got published just this month. So that's how I got from the year. Very, very cool. It's interesting you said, you know, that somebody like Forbes, you know, hadn't really delved into medical device entrepreneurship. I think from the outside standpoint, it feels like a very difficult environment to innovate and be an entrepreneur in because you have science, you have engineering, you have regulatory. So what is it about that combination that allows, because I think being here in Orange County, we see so many startups and so many medical device companies um, pursuing really innovative ideas. But what, what is it that sort of on the outside, it looks really hard and, and it is, of course, but obviously people are, are figuring it out. So, you know, how, how do those perception realities not connect so well? Well, it, it is it is challenging, um, but I think you have to begin with um, really identifying a problem, a real mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think m many engineers are, are, are driven to create solutions and yes. sometimes they invent a solution and then they go look for a problem. That's the hammer problem, um, right? It's like everything looks I, like a nail, yeah. It's classic and you know, how I've had success and how I've seen success with other, other colleagues and companies is they work with the customer who's really the innovator mm -hmm. and help to identify what their problem is. is. Is it not easy to use? Is something not reliable? Is, is the procedure challenging? If they had something else, it, it would make it safer and uh, easier and more, more therapeutic. So knowing the customer is, I, I guess, the biggest uh, challenge. And if you can know who the customer is and really understand what the problems are and then say, hey, I have the right team for the solution, then I think that's the hardest part, right? And then once you created a solution for a real problem, investors is the next big sure. challenge. Sure. But, in, but investors aren't, aren't going to invest in a solution. Right. The, the investor wants to, as I just explained, is it a real problem? Is it a big market? Is there a way to get paid for the product? Is there reimbursement? If you can check the boxes, and by the way, the team has already done this before, the investors will invest in that team. Sure. And then it's off to the races. But it's those two things that, which make it the hardest. Mm. A real problem in, in raising money. And once you've identified a way to do that, then the team that they invested in will just do the execution, get to market. If you did solve the problem, you'll either have an acquisition or an IPO and mm -hmm. hit repeat. <laughs> so, well, you make it sound so it easy. Simple. Yeah. You make it sound so easy. Obviously we both know that's not, not reality, 
that you know no. you've spent it's interesting because you you've spent a career in medical devices you know as you mentioned big companies small companies everything in between and you you talk about this this life cycle if you want to call it from concept to commercialization and yet what you were just describing is not unique to medical devices right that is a very broad um innovation market reality you've got to find real problems i i often talk about not just real problems but problems that people are motivated to have solved and willing to pay for as another but what what do you think about as distinctively unique in medical device product development innovation over other categories well you know, so I, you know, I'm a plastics engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I went to school for. And I, I grew up around plastics industry in Lemonster, Massachusetts. My father was a tool and die designer. He, he designed the metal molds that made the plastic components. Mm-hmm. He, he made parts for Kodak, Polaroid, CR Bard, Ford. Um, so I, I understand the process and the polymers, either from extrusion or, or injection molding. And I also understand the characteristic based on the chemistry that the polymer can provide mm-hmm. in terms of performance and, and those unique attributes. Um, so as, as the engineer, I'm, I'm looking for those material science uh, problems to solve. Mm. Um, you know, it, it could be based on size, it could be based on flexibility, it could be based on durability. Um, so if I can, see a problem and conceive what I could make it out of, mm-hmm. um, then I can build the team around it and design it, develop it and get the market. Um, so, you know, I'm always looking for problems that, 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 that center around, you know, you know, polymers and metals. I'm not doing anything in biotech. I'm not developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not in my lane or in my wheelhouse. Um, so I'm, it's easy for me. I mean, that's my area of expertise, polymer processing, certain types of metals, nitinol, cobalt, chromium. I, I know the properties and how to process those. Mm. Um, so can something be made easier? Can something be made smaller, more reliable, safer? So, but that that concept comes from, from me, you know, going to a hospital and watching procedures. I was mm-hmm. just in Toronto, Canada a couple of weeks ago. And I was in the angel suite for two straight days watching cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm observing the physician's hands. I'm absorbing the movement in the room. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm observing how the product's being introduced and, and deployed. So I'm watching the flow. Um, now I'm taking notes constantly. Sure. Um, and then after I'll have a Q&A with the physician and ask them if they could explain something because I can't see everything. I'm, I'm actually not in the procedure. Um, but so based on my knowledge of materials and processing, I can get that whole concept down. And since we've been working with similar materials and similar uh, products now for 30 years, I know how to commercialize this. So that's, that's the gap that we aim to fill. Super fascinating. Let's, let's pivot just a little bit. What are the biggest challenges that you face working with physicians who tend to be a very, very high intelligence group. 
Um, they, they, I think like many of us, they probably orient to the solution first because they have an idea or something. But what do you see as the biggest challenge when, as you say, you know, most of, of your ideas are market customer position inspired. Where, where do you run into challenges with them? Well, there's one physician I'm working with right now, and he's got so many ideas. Mm. Um, and, you know, they aren't treating the same problem every day. They're treating, you know, maybe 10 different, you know, you know problems. Sure. If it's a, a neurointerventional surgeon, they, they could be treating a brain AVM one day, a brain aneurysm the next. They could be treating ischemic stroke that day. They, they could be doing a diagnostic angiogram. They could be treating you know, something else called pulsatotinnitus. Um, you know, so they're seeing so many different issues mm. and getting them to focus on the problem, explaining it to me, and then, and then brainstorming the different solutions, maybe the sizes, the access to that disease. Um, that is a challenge. Um, a, a second challenge is, is sometimes they don't have the resources um, to test the product mm. or they're halfway across the world. Okay. Um, so, you know, that, that makes the challenge. So I, I, you know, I just have to travel a little bit more to go see them. And during COVID that's impossible. You know, last year really hit the reset button on a lot of the travel that we would normally do. Um, so you have to do things more on zoom or video or, you know, or just mail devices and so forth. But, you know, you know, and then, yeah, kind of intertwined there is, is I am not a physician. So as, as, as much as I understand some of the anatomy and some of the disease, I don't have, you know, all the understanding of what could go wrong. So, you know, some, some physicians, it, it's, it's hard for them to really simplify it or kind of dumb it down so I can truly under, understand the problem so I can come up with a safe and reliable solution. So, um, but for the most part, we usually get it done. We'll just build more and more prototypes. We'll do more and more testing. Um, we'll eventually get there. Um, but you know, it's it's really a challenge working with these smart, talented people that have so many problems and getting them to focus on what's the most important problem. And maybe there's five of them. Okay, but there's not a shortage of problems to solve for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's. Uh, you know, to transition to the next topic I wanted to cover with you, uh, I think that's a great jumping off point. There are problems every day that we both encounter, which are what inspire, I'm guessing, both of us to, we, we kind of live these parallel lives, both having launched and, and running venture studios. So there are definitely days that I go, are we crazy doing this? Um, what you tell me, yeah, tell me what, what led you to say, you know what, I'm not going to do one at a time. I'm going to do multiple. Hmm. <laughs> we are crazy. Yeah. So, um, at the startups that I, I've been at probably the ones that you've also worked with, uh, it's, it's very busy. It's hectic. It's chaos, but it's not like that 60 hours a week. Okay. Um, that chaos and the hectic time is when the magic happens, you know, but you do have downtime. Mm -hmm. um, you're waiting for materials, you're waiting for testing, you're waiting for something to be assembled. 
Um, so you have time to work on other projects. And if they're similar to what you're presently working on, maybe it requires some slight modification, um, then that's where you can do things in parallel. So, mm -hmm. you know, a, a catheter-based uh, problem that I'm solving in the brain uh, could also be used to treat something similar in the heart, the lungs. Um, it's just a different size, uh, different flexibility. Um, so small modifications may need to be made to make that work or function in a, in a different part of the body. In, in, the, in, in the brain, our products are very small. Um, it's called uh, French size. So one, one French is, it, it's a fancy word that they came up with in France. I don't know if you were but one French is actually 13 thousandths. And 13 thousandths is a third of a millimeter, which is 039. Okay, so I'm working in fractions of millimeters. And you know we can convert it to inches and all that, but mm -hmm. most most catheters in the brain are three French and smaller, mm -hmm. so they're one millimeter and smaller. Um, but we're using guide catheters that are nine French, eight eight French. To put that in perspective, you know, so you're you know a, a key artery in the uh, uh, brain, the internal carotid artery at the origin is roughly six millimeters. Okay. The aorta that goes across the heart, that goes down to the uh, pelvic area, this is roughly 30 millimeters. It's, it's carrying a lot of blood yeah. to go to the brain, to go down to the arms and legs. And you can have what's called a triple A, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, where the diameter of that is probably eight to 20 millimeters. Hmm. I'm not using devices that size up here. I'm making it much smaller. Hmm. So whatever I'm making up here, I can make larger for here. Sure. So I can do that in parallel. Um, it's much easier in some cases to make it bigger and stiffer. It's kind of harder to make it smaller and more, more flexible. So we stay in our lane in making catheters and delivery systems and, and, and you know, in these embolization devices such as stents and coils. But if, if I can make it in the, in the brain, then I can make it in the, the legs, the, you know, the renal, the liver, the kidney. Um, so that allows us to go in parallel with say three, four, five at a time. Whereas if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm giving it into biotech or a vaccine, it's a whole different skill set, a whole different knowledge, uh, different, uh, you know, path to market. That's when you're going to fail. Uh, you have the wrong team. You're guessing. But if I can make something bigger or smaller, but it's still a catheter, it's still a coil, it's still a stent, then we have a much higher degree of success. And if it's going after a new indication, that gets investors excited. It gets the FDA excited. So we tend to stay in our lane there, but it allows us to do several products in parallel. Interesting. So what, I, what I'm taking from that is the word that I love, which is leverage, is that you just naturally are looking for where you can gain leverage. Yeah. As you've been doing this now for a little while, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned so far, it's it, it's it's the most painful thing is make mistakes, <laughs> and then learn from them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I say to my team, you know, and I, I don't know where I learned this. I might have learned this from from Guy Kawasaki years and years ago. But I like to straddle the lane between the learning zone and the out of control zone. Mm -hmm. So if you look at kind of a bullseye, okay, this mm -hmm. inner circle is is your comfort zone. Outside is the learning zone. Outside is the out of control zone. 
And, and if you want to grow the comfort zone, you got to learn more. Mm-hmm. But in order to learn more, you got to be out of control and making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to straddle that line between being out of control and learning on a regular basis. Okay. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are afraid to make mistakes. They either mm-hmm. fear of bruising their ego, fear of being terminated, fear of not reaching the compensation they want. But all that doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. If you can make mistakes and gain the knowledge, then you won't be fired. You'll make more money. You'll have stronger teams. So you get the experience and growth and learning by making mistakes. Um, And and you learn most by making your own mistakes, not by watching others make mistakes or reading about it in a book. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to make mistakes. and then learn from them. That's my biggest learning, uh, I guess, you know, piece of my career so far. Hmm. That's, there's so much, so much gold in that. And you know, what I say to you, you mentioned this is, you know, th- this is what gives us the advantage as entrepreneurs because we, we value not, don't seek to make mistakes, but we value what, what we learn from them. And, we embrace the consequence where so many people in other situations don't have the right incentive trade-off between trying something and succeeding versus their fear of loss if they don't succeed and they fail and learn or make the mistake, right? And so that trade-off imbalance is what keeps companies from moving forward, which is what gives us constant opportunities. Because I mean, the reality is they see the problems all the time. They just choose not to do anything about them. And you and I wake up and go, oh, we can fix that. Let's go do that. Yeah. yeah. So it is fascinating. Or, or hey, I, I might've seen this before. I don't know how we're gonna get there, but I, I know we have the team to do it. That's right. All right. And, and we're going to struggle, but then we're going to get that aha moment from some mistake we made, and then it's off to the races. That's right. So I've got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this show, Dave. What, what would you say as you describe the value of a studio in partnering? You know, I'm an entrepreneur, maybe I'm in a physician who sees some problems in your space. What's the value of working with a studio from your perspective? Yeah, so, you know, a venture studio in, in my terms or my, my understanding is um, it's quite different than, say, an incubator or an accelerator. Uh, the venture studio has key experience and knowledgeable people already there. Mm-hmm. They've had success, they've had failure, they're experts in certain areas or certain sectors. Um, they already have technology there um, for you to come in and use and move much faster to the end goal of development or commercialization. Um, in our case, so if you're medical devices, we have in-house catheter manufacturing. We have in-house device assembly. We have in-house mechanical testing. We have the key people that have the direct experience to raise the money to design the product to get the product approved through the fda and c mark so you know that that's our domain expertise and you know 
some entrepreneurs, uh, well, most, if they have an idea, that they have to find a company to design their catheter, and then they have to find a company to manufacture it. They have to find a group to test it. The uh, studio, the venture studio, has all that in place because you're working with a group of entrepreneurs who have already been there and done it several times, and they have their own footprint. They, they, they own the technology in their own domain. So if you have an idea that is in that domain, you can come, you can capitalize on the team, the technology, the process, the expertise. Um, you know, and you know, if, if you have the right strategy to get your, your products designed, developed and into the marketplace, you save so much money. That's right. You know, so you, that uh, venture team or that venture studio team may have already made some of those mistakes in the past and they can help you to get around those. So then rather than getting to market in 18 months, you get to market in 12 months. That's that's six months of, of operating plan money you that's saved. That's right. So that, you know, it's it, it's a lot of things. I mean, I mean, it isn't just you just drop it in and it's a machine and it spits it out. It's mm-hmm. It's a lot of work, but it's work done by a team of people that have already done it several times and you know, they're like mentors, you know, so the Venture Studio is a really solid group of mentors. Um, and we like to, to see people succeed. You know, you know if, 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 I mean, if we had more entrepreneurs in Orange County or the world in the past year, you know, this wouldn't have been as liberating to so many people, but it, it was very hard last year. And sure. I feel fortunate that it happened to me in such a later stage in my life. Mm. Right, I had the knowledge, I had the team, I had something to fall back on, mm-hmm. which was the venture studio that we had formed in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot in there. And you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is this, and you describe this, if, if I have the idea, I have to go find all these various partners, people, etc., to make this a reality. And you've really got it all in one place to get me from zero to one so much faster, so much cheaper with less risk. And, you know, the term that I, I see a lot in the market is what I call reinventing the wheel. And, you know, what, what really, I think we offer a value it's, it's, it is this leverage that there's a lot of capability and knowledge all already put together. And the other thing I think is confidence in that going and trying to put all that together yourself, it, it's daunting. And you know, I think that prevents a lot of entrepreneurs from actually pursuing their idea because they will start to run into roadblocks. And so I think what we also serve to offer is a lot of confidence to help them move forward. And I find that that's one of the roles that we have to play a lot with our founders is just reminding them, hey, we're in this together. We're partners. Yeah. And this isn't our first time. And we've seen this. And this may be your first time seeing this roadblock or this stumble, but we'll get through it together. Right. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, there's an engineer that I've, I've been talking to for, it's got to be eight years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, he hasn't succeeded yet. Very innovative he's designed and developed several devices that would work in my field. And what's holding him back is he doesn't want to give up the equity and dilute mm-hmm. himself. And 
Um, you know, I, I try to explain, you know, having 30% of something versus 100% of something, you have to get over that. And mm -hmm. if you can't, then you'll just own 100% of nothing. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, I see this a lot in speaking to physicians who have great ideas, but the market will never see them because they're afraid to give up equity to, as you say, leverage our expertise and our experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wonder how many ideas or solutions we'll never see because of that ego-driven, I can't be diluted. That's right? Right. And, but if you only leverage this venture studio concept, you could get to market and really solve problems. Oh, it's so true. And, and it's kind of this idea of like, what's more important? Is it more important for you to be in control and uh, make every decision? Or is it more important for you to see this in the market and win? And, you know, those are the kinds of conversations I think you and I probably have all the time. And, you know, what you described there is one of the key things that I always really interview for, which is this idea of how collaborative and coachable they are. If they have to be expert at everything, then they're probably not going to be great at anything and therefore probably not succeed. And right. it's just, it's really hard. It, it's really hard to be an expert at everything. I, I've sort of come to the realization that I'm actually expert at nothing. And that's my, that's my skill. I guess I know a little bit about a lot, but I'm not great at anything. And I try to find those founders who are great at something that we can build around. I think we're in the same boat, me and you. Yes. <laughs> that's a good team. So Dave, as you think ahead to you know, the activity going on in your market space, any foundational technology advancements or, or breakthroughs that you're tracking that are really exciting to you right now? Yeah. Um, so there's, um, you know, a few areas that we, we've looked at um, that we brought internally. Uh, one is to actually make our, our own catheters in-house. That's something that we, we actually did last year. And as you bring in that expertise, we're actually able to um, utilize different materials much, much faster. Mm -hmm. um, we've developed a new type of liner for a catheter um, that we know no one is using. Mm -hmm. um, so by owning the, uh, the process and the ability to manufacture and design something is is giving us the, uh, the ability to um, track and develop how new materials and technologies are being utilized to solve problems. So we're able to increase the burst pressure of a catheter um, seven or eight fold over what the standard is today wow. while maintaining a more flexible device that can get up into the brain. Um, you know, that's like one key thing. Mm -hmm. um, We've also brought in-house our own ability to manufacture braided stents, which are used to either treat a brain aneurysm or just to keep an artery open. Um, so by, you know, you, know, you, know, you know, tracking that kind of technology has given us a lot more expertise and the ability to do things uh, faster. But I think another key area is what's called information enabling uh, data collection. So in every market, 
you know, data is being collected and tracked and managed. And in healthcare, it's very important. So mm -hmm. if a physician is using your device in the body and they're able to know, you know, it, you know immediately, what's the internal pressure of that artery? Um, is the uh, vessel patent? Is there blood flowing? Is the vessel occluded? Um, what's, what's the glucose inside the artery? You know, what's the pH? So we're beginning to design and develop sensors that can go on our devices that can give the physician immediate feedback uh, during the procedure. And then after the procedure, when the patient is in recovery, the nurses who are, who are tracking in the intensive care unit can be monitoring the patient remotely through these types of sensors and say information enabling products. So, you know, so our ability to develop our own products internally and not rely on the outsourcing is enabling us to use newer materials and also to develop these information enabling products, which we think will be at the forefront of the medical devices that we're designing and developing now. Uh, absolutely. That's so interesting. So are we seeing with any regularity, persistent sensor technologies getting implanted inside that can report on an ongoing basis? Because it seems like that's you know been on the radar for a while, but not really a reality. Yeah, there's there's products that have um, you know sensors built in now to measure mm -hmm. flow rate of urine, mm -hmm. uh, but those aren't being applied to measure flow rate of blood right now. There's uh, sensors that the anesthesiologists can use and what's, what's called a PIC line or a central line mm -hmm. to measure the patient's uh, 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 blood pressure. But those aren't being put onto the tip of say a ischemic stroke aspiration catheter to actually measure the local pressure. And that local pressure is something we're learning would be helpful in a patient that has what's called pulsatile tinnitus, mm. which is a defect that is in the that is in the vein actually drains below the ear, and it's that, that, so there's a pressure gradient that is affected by a stenosis in that vein. If the physician can measure the gradient of the pressure in situ at the location, then they'll know what patients to treat, mm -hmm. and it's something that they can't actually measure right now. So we're looking at applying that to a catheter that we're going to make mm -hmm. along with a stent to actually treat that, that vascular defect. So there's all this sensing being utilized for other applications, but now it's applying them to something that could be used during a therapeutic indication. Sure, yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we, I think we both see that's very much the future. And even this idea of being able to monitor and you know adjust, you could adjust settings and have more dynamic types, you know, where, where maybe they're mechanical, now you could have more digital uh, type of devices in yeah. the future. So it's, it's certainly in front of us, which is super exciting because I think it'll end up creating better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So Dave, you know, we're both transplants here at Orange County. We've been here a while. I always like asking my guests who are also here, you know, what do you most appreciate about being here? Oh boy. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I had four seasons. And as much as people say, oh, you have the fall and the spring, the summer and the winter, the weather here 
is the best. <laughs> I have spring and summer year round and my family loves it. We're outdoors people. Mm. We have a variety of landscape, the ocean to the, to the mountains. I, you know, I, I live in a canyon. I'm 20 minutes from Newport Beach year round. Mm. Um, and I also like the energetic, health-minded people. Uh, you know, you're outside, so you're not stuck indoors for months at a time. Uh, you know, and, and that, you know, that kind of makes people happier. Mm. Um, yeah, there's lots of things to do here year round, and I have lots of visitors, so that that's fantastic too. Uh, I guess we somewhat live in a vacation destination. Uh, there's never a shortage of that. Uh, now, I I love the outdoors here. Uh, I haven't felt one earthquake in my life. <laughs> I've been living here for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't been, I've, I know wildfires are, are, are a thing around here. I, I, I've smelled them, but you know, I, my house is, 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 is modernized, but still I, I love the weather and the people. So this is a fantastic, and I know people are leaving California, but there's a lot coming because yes. they're building new homes all the time. So I can't figure it out, but I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, what narrative people are trying to support, but I'm like you, we, uh, I think, yeah, we've, we've sort of got it all. And you, you feel like in the last year, people have become much more aware and intentional about those kinds of decisions, right? I, mean, I, I think where you live has a much, much bigger impact on people than what most people realize. And yeah. I feel like this last year has probably brought that home. And I don't, you know, I don't purport everybody should live here, but I think people should be more intentional. Like you, you said, you know, I know why I'm here and, you know, you could live anywhere and, and choosing to live where you want is going to make you much, generally speaking, much happier. I agree. So we're coming up on time, Dave. This has been awesome. What are you more excited, most, I guess, excited about? You know, things are coming back today. We're actually doing this recording on the day that California is supposed to fully open back up. Um, as, as people are starting to get back together more, you know, what, what are you most excited about? Yeah, the state apparently reopens today. Uh, this is the big day. So I'm encouraged that people are gonna either hit the reset button or feel liberated uh, that there's nothing can hold us back. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I've been kind of shedding the inefficiencies of, of, of the past year. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it, it's, uh, it's not easy, but it's easier because I work in this healthcare industry. I, I don't work in, in uh, you know, the hospitality business. So, mm -hmm. so but you know, I've, I'm not traveling as much as I used to, and I actually like that. I used to do 300,000 miles a year mm. all over the world. And, uh, you know, to meet a couple of people for four or five hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was expensive. I was tired. It was inefficient. So I'm looking forward to somewhat of a liberating ex experience of being much more focused, much more efficient. Um, and, you know, being more selective in things that I actually do, you know, the time I spend with friends and family, the projects that I, that I work on. Uh, so I'm more excited about a, a new beginning, but that I can do it here in Southern California. Awesome. Well, last question. We've talked a little bit about this, but if you were to give one piece of advice to 
these early aspiring entrepreneurs that are developing their new ideas right now? What would that be? I touched on it earlier and I don't think it can be um, overstated. Mm -hmm. uh, solve real problems, mm -hmm. uh, not just your own problems. Make sure they have an effect on many, many people, um, has a real market and you can get a patent on it. So if you can protect it, it's a real market and it's a real, a real problem that affects a lot of people. That's where it all starts. And then you'll have a higher degree of success. Dave, thank you so much for joining me. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years. It's been super enlightening for me to see somebody doing so many similar things, but in a completely different market space. And so look forward to continuing to find those ways to collaborate. Great to have a, a fellow venture studio operator with me on uh, the Operate podcast. Super fun conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a great opportunity for me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.